Hello, and welcome to Sacred Herbalism, the full moon segment of the Elder Tree podcast, where we explore how plants and fungi can support us to enter into a sacred relationship with life and the living world. I'm your host, Stephanie Hazel, herbalist, anthropologist, and a deep lover of this wild world. Let's walk into the moonlit forest together, into a world of magic, mysticism, psychedelic teachers, and, of course, the plants themselves. Are you ready? As a plant person, you love the natural world, right? You feel connected to plants, to the ecosystems that support us with foods, medicines, and ritual, right? But how often do you fall into the trap of anthropocentrism? Of thinking of humans as the epicenter of what matters? How often do you engage with medicinal plants as being somehow put here just to help us humans out? How often do you accidentally think of medicine plants as commodities? Probably quite often. I know I do, much to my dismay. It's kind of automatic. But in counterpoint to all this pervasive anthropocentrism, we have the philosophy of deep ecology that gives us experiences of being a small part of a vast living being, of being descended from the rocks, the plants, and the very stars. Today I interview John Seed, co-founder of the deep ecology movement and a seriously accomplished environmental activist. He's the founder and director of Rainforest Information Centre and has been a significant part of environmental action since 1979, preserving Australian, South American, Cambodian and Taiwanese rainforests. He's fought to protect the largest remaining population of Asian elephants, spearheaded tree planting projects in India and Kenya, and produced and performed multiple films and roadshows from the 80s onwards, raising awareness about climate change and species extinction. In 1995, he was awarded the Order of Australia Medal by the Australian Government for Services to Conservation and the Environment. And throughout all these accomplishments, he's continued to promote the philosophy of deep ecology and run experiential workshops that have supported thousands of people to get in touch with their ecological identity, with their grief about the state of the planet, and turn that grief into empowered action for positive change. I met John when I was 23. I had recently moved onto an intentional community in Barkersvale, North New South Wales, a gorgeous property nestled below the hills of the border ranges. I lived in a share house with John's son Bodhi and his partner Mavanwi. John lived in a cabin on the same property and I shared many a meal with John during those years, as well as tagged along some of his workshops. His dedication to environmental action and right relationship to the living world was inspiring to say the least. In this episode, we explore the principles of deep ecology, how that applies to herbal folk, and we wonder how we might ask deeper questions. How do we make ourselves small enough to hear what the plants might have to say about what needs to happen in this era of crisis? John also shares some powerful stories about how psychedelic teacher plants played a role in the inception of deep ecology, and also a really important role in his own life. And we generally just have a good catch up. Thank you, John, for all your hard work for the earth and all the beings who are a part of her. Good morning, John. Thanks so much for joining me today. 
Thank you, Steph. Yeah. So I'd love if you could explain to our listeners, just in your own words, what deep ecology is. Well, um, the term deep ecology was coined by the late Arnie Ness, uh, the professor of uh, philosophy at Oslo University. And um, according to Ness, uh, underlying all of the symptoms of the environmental crisis is the illusion of separation between human beings and the natural world. And this uh, illusion of separation itself is a result of anthropocentrism or human-centeredness, the idea that human beings are the centre of everything. Mm. So uh, we are the crown of creation. We are the measure of all being. The world consists of human beings on the one hand and resources on the other hand. Nothing has intrinsic value except humans. Everything else may have instrumental value Mm. if it's uh, a resource for humans. So this kind of overweening arrogance um, is the uh, cause of the environment well is the cause of the illusion of separation that leads to the environmental crisis that uh, lead is leading to this slide to oblivion mm. and uh, uh, so um, Ness uh, went on to call on um, us to develop uh, what he called um, community therapies to heal that illusion of separation. And so the philosophy of deep ecology and the uh, design and facilitation of those community therapies is uh, um, part of what I've been working on for the last uh, Mm. three decades. And I was actually at one of those workshops or as you're calling them community therapies about 12 years ago with you and it was a very powerful um, process of really using the imaginative capacity of the human brain to feel into our relationship with all the other beings that are alive Uh, and yeah I I was very moved by it and um, especially the council of all beings being a way where different people in the room take on that role of speaking for the eagles and the rocks and the pine trees all the different species um and inviting their voices into that room was really powerful surprisingly powerful you know when I heard it described it sounded interesting but actually living it was something very special happens in those community therapy workshops that you're talking about well the council of all beings was the first of those uh, so i had been uh, totally um, swept away by the philosophy of deep ecology and uh, coming from an activist background uh, i'd been working for the protection of rainforests for um six or seven years at the time that I ran into deep ecology. But uh, in spite of our successes in Australia using direct action at Terrania Creek, where we were able to protect a huge swathe of the subtropical rainforests um, uh, in 1979 to 1981, and then Tasmania, the temperate rainforests, through the Franklin Dam decision in 1982, and then the tropical rainforests in far north Queensland a few years after that. In each case, national parks and eventual World Heritage listing rewarded our efforts. Uh, uh, Nonetheless, during that first half of the 1980s, it became clear that for every forest that was being protected around the world, a thousand forests were lost. Mm -hmm. And clearly there was no way to save the planet one forest at a time, that unless we could address the underlying spiritual disease or psychological disease 
that allows modern humans to imagine that we can somehow profit from the destruction of our own life support systems, clearly these um, actions would be of no particular consequence for the future of the world. And uh, so when I stumbled upon deep ecology, it was immensely exciting for me and uh, I took to it as if it was another environmental campaign and I was standing behind a mimeograph machine churning out reams of paper and sending them to environment groups and politicians and so on. But it was only when I met Joanna Macy in 1986 mm. that uh, the other piece of the puzzle fell into place, which had, has to do with how to actually design um, these community therapies, how to design processes that allow for um, the, the the healing to take place. Mm-hmm. So the philosophy that is around of deep ecology, that we are part of the living world, that we are one species amongst many, that, you know, all of the living creatures are our kin, um, is that, that, that philosophy of deep ecology is a way to change our perception and, and orient ourselves towards life itself. But what I'm hearing is then Joanna Macy's work gave you that um, practical way to support other people to have that experience through workshops. Is that right? Yeah, so she was running a workshop which I attended and at that time it was called Despair and Empowerment. Mm. And uh, what Joanna taught us was that um, the um, feelings of uh, despair and rage and terror uh, at what we see happening to our world that we dare not experience, let alone share with each other, Mm. um, that if we can create a safe container and invite those feelings and welcome those feelings and honour them, that uh, there's a tremendous liberation of the energy that was used to suppress the feelings becomes available to Mm. us and we experience that as empowerment. And um, that uh, when uh, I spoke to her about deep ecology, she was just as moved about deep, by deep ecology as I was moved by this uh, immensely powerful engine of sort of personal change that she had introduced me to. And uh, it was actually within a week we were walking together through the rainforest at Terrania Creek and uh, uh, talking excitedly and uh, that's where the Council of All Beings was born. Beautiful. I think just for everyone, the listeners, um, Joanna Macy's work is now called The Work That Reconnects, um, I think. It's the same processes. Um, so if people are looking for that out there in the world, the, the work that reconnects or your work with deep ecology have that um, strong overlap. That's right. And, and, and what she then called despair and empowerment, she now calls honouring our pain for the world. Mm, so beautiful. And yeah. I think it's true how how deep that grief runs for all of us, you know, and it's so hard to know how to engage with the grief. You know, I, I find it so hard on a day-to-day, you know, there's this sense of I have a small child, I have to make ends meet, I'm trying to make, you know, I'm trying to survive, keep my head above water in so many different ways and in the back, somewhere deep in the back of my psyche, there's always this, you know, dam of of pain and grief and confusion and overwhelm around like, you know, this feeling of like, what am I even doing? Like I'm teaching a class about how to use herbs for anxiety. That's not, you know, that's not really the answer. (laughs) might be a small part of the answer, but there's something much bigger happening. And I think for all of us, there is that, that deep 
deep confusion that, and that desire to put that energy somewhere that might actually make a difference. Yes. Yeah. So I've been looking at your book to refresh myself this morning, Thinking Like a Mountain. It's a very sweet compilation of essays and John C., Joanna Macy, Arnie Nace, who you just mentioned before, the originator of the, the words and the initial concepts of deep ecology, and Pat Fleming. Um, and I think it's a really nice introduction for anyone to have a, have a look. There's some beautiful poetry and short essays. And I particularly have been enjoying your Beyond Anthropocentrism chapter. Um, I'm just going to read a little, a little paragraph that I really enjoyed. So we're talking about um, anthropocentrism being this obsession of seeing ourselves as separate and better than, and when we can get uh, out of that, there's a great liberation that happens. You say, for some people, however, this change of perspective follows from actions on behalf of Mother Earth. I am protecting the rainforest develops to, I am part of the rainforest protecting myself. I am that part of the rainforest recently emerged into thinking. What a relief then. The thousands of years of imagined separation are over and we begin to recall our true nature. That is, the change is a spiritual one, thinking like a mountain, sometimes referred to as deep ecology. Remember our childhood as minerals, as lava, as rocks? Rocks contain the potentiality to weave themselves into such stuff as this, we are the rocks dancing. Why do we look down on them with such a condescending air? It is that they are the immortal part of ourselves. Yeah, really beautiful. Mm, thanks. <laughs> so that, that book um, is available as a PDF um, if anyone want, wants to have a look at it. Uh, it's a, it's about, um, we'll put a link in the show notes. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's worth a read. It's not very long. It's 128 pages and it's, you know, uh, and it, quite a light read, really, for such a deep topic. Um, and I've been thinking a lot over the years about, as my work as a herbalist, you know, it is so much about um, using the plants and, and make, t I guess, benefiting from the plants that grow all through the world. And I've often had this experience of being really moved and blown away by the fact that all over the planet there are these little beings that are living beings that have this amazing capacity to turn sunlight and air and water into these complex chemicals that happen, just happen, to fit into my body and brain and create these incredible transformations and healing. And if I allow that fact to really penetrate me and allow that to really open me, I have an experience of deep ecology, that sense of, oh, of course I'm a part of this. Of course I belong in this world. Of course I'm a part of the great dance of life. There are these other beings growing far away making medicine for me, not just for me, you know, for other beings as well. But that's such a beautiful realisation to be, you know, to be moved by. And I've been thinking about that a little bit like deep botany, you know, how we can use herbal medicine as a way, as a doorway into deep ecology, I suppose. Now that's very beautifully put, Steph. Uh, I love that. Thank you. And I'm wondering, like, what in when we talk about the sacred a lot in this podcast and sacred herbalism, I'm curious if you could explore how the sacred fits in with deep ecology or where the space for the sacred is in that philosophy. Well, um, I, I myself see that the line that we draw between uh, the sacred or the spiritual and um, the earth and ecology is itself 
you know, a, a kind of an illusion is itself a, 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 a false distinction that um, um, many people have recognised this, say, um, you know, the late Thomas Berry, who was uh, perhaps the most influential Catholic uh, theologian of the late 20th century, realised um, quite uh, late in his life that he was no longer a theologian, but he was now a geologian, and his attention turned from this amorphous kind of God that he'd been, um, you know, worshipping all his life to the earth itself as the source of uh, everything, including humans and including, of course, all of the spiritual aspirations and amazing spiritual experiences that humans are capable of, and that it all comes from the earth because uh, that's all there is. And uh, so uh, uh, I, I feel like plants is one of the is one of the um, one of our teachers is um, you know and one of the processes that I use in the workshops uh, most of the most of the workshops that I do uh, are done in community and so they're designed for a circle of people to uh, experience together and I as the facilitator once I've introduced the process just become part of the circle and a participant having that experience along with everybody else. One of the processes involves um, considering what happens when we exchange gases with a plant. And so the, the introduction to that uh, is uh, remembering that time um, over two billion years ago when um, our ancestors were single-celled organisms floating in the ocean and at a certain point, there was a um, a, a food a lack of food uh, as a result of our success. That we had become so successful, and we kept multiplying and dividing, that all of the freely available nutrients in the ocean had become part of our bodies. And so that crisis was solved by the ingenuity of some of our number, who learned how to um, capture photons of light from the sun. And using the energy of that, uh, break molecules that had previously been inaccessible. In particular, CO2, we were able to extract the carbon, and H2O, we were able to extract the hydrogen and um, created the uh, carbohydrates that we needed for mm. our bodies. And in this way, um, uh, we're able to uh, produce 18 times as much energy as our ancestors had been able to do, and life flourished from then on. And this was done with a new molecule uh, called chlorophyll, and um, this process is what we now call photosynthesis. Um, the problem with this was that uh, every time this transaction took place and um, CO2, a molecule of CO2 or a molecule of H2O was broken, um, oxygen would be released, and that was a toxic poison to the anaerobic life of that time. Mm. For nearly one billion years, that uh, oxygen was unable to wreak any havoc because there was so much iron dissolved in the oceans brought up from the heart of the earth in lava that the moment that oxygen was released, it would uh, combine with the iron dissolved in the ocean and one molecule of rust would fall to the floor of the ocean. Hmm. Over a billion years, that created the banded iron formations that now 
are the basis of our motor vehicles and our buildings and everything. That um, mm. The reason that that iron is accumulated, it was all done one molecule at a time by these ancestors. But eventually all the iron had been used up, oxygen built up, threatening all of life. And this was solved by the ingenuity of the next of these single-celled organisms. And they substituted an atom of iron for the atom of magnesium at the centre of the chlorophyll molecule to create the heme molecule, which later became the haemoglobin transporting oxygen through all animal bodies. And uh, so we learned how to breathe um, mm. and animals, the, the, the forerunners of animals came into being. And this ancient cycle of partnership between those that inhale oxygen and exhale CO2 and those that inhale CO2 and exhale oxygen, um, that has been um, kept both the plants and the animals um, alive ever since, that if either side dropped the ball, the other side would cease to exist. Mm. So... CO2 has had a bad rap recently for good reasons. We've been producing far too much. But in this um, little exercise that we do, we remember the amazingly honourable origins of our relationship with CO2 and we exchange gases with plants. We turn outward and we look at something green, uh, a tree or a blade of grass, and we deliberately... um, allow ourselves to feel the abundance of producing a gas that this green thing needs in order to exist. And we feel uh, generous as we exhale. And then we remember the gift that we're receiving and we feel gratitude as we inhale. And we do this for four or five minutes. And this uh, does the same thing as you were talking about earlier, uh, as you think about plants, um, how that brings you into the deep ecology consciousness. And um, this does the same thing. It, it nourishes our ecological identity. Mm. Aniness said that because this uh, illusion um, of separation and the anthropocentrism that give rise to it is so ancient in our culture, going back at least as far as the Old Testament, um, we're not going to be able to think our way out of the mess. We, we mm. need these experiences. And um, he said that ecological ideas won't be enough to save us. What's needed is ecological identity, ecological self. Mm. And uh, these kind of processes um, uh, bring our ecological identity into the foreground. Mm, yeah, amazing. I um, have a confession to make, which is that that exact uh, process that you just described um, when I learned that with you 12 years ago was hugely influential. And now every time I do uh, a workshop with, with participants, that's usually about learning herbal medicine or plant connection. I always start with a you know Stephanie Hazel version of that breathing with the plants meditation, uh, because I completely felt the power of that, of sitting with our gratitude and our awareness of that reciprocal relationship of the breath, the most basic thing that keeps us alive in every moment. Um, Yeah. So thanks for describing that. And thank you so much for teaching that to me all those years ago. It's been really important in my work. Um, You mentioned the word ancestor before, and I think that that's um, something worth exploring and, you know, I think we hear a lot from Indigenous cultures around the world around, you know, the plants are our ancestors or the different animals are our ancestors. But when you explain it like you just did with the evolutionary process of the world becoming 
tenable and and nourishing for mammals like us to evolve. Um, I think that really does allow us, our science rational brained culture to be like, oh yeah, the plants are not just metaphorically my ancestors, they are physically and actually my ancestors because if those plants weren't there for millions of years doing the work of you know, as you said, that that the those bonds breaking and oxygen being accidentally released, then I could never have existed. This type of life could never have existed. Just like if my great grandmother hadn't gotten pregnant on the day she did with my great grandmother, I would never have existed. So that like actual ancestry that we have with those beings, and and hopefully a relationship of respect can and and honouring can emerge from that realization. Uh, indeed, and uh, you know, just to to contemplate the how, how to say scientific as well as metaphorical truth and certainty that every cell in my body is descended in an unbroken chain through those events, through mm-hmm. those incredible events that this uh, and that for four and a half billion years since the first cell of life on Earth. Every single one of my ancestors during that time has somehow managed to reach the age of reproducing itself before it was consumed. There was not a single exception or uh, we wouldn't be here having this conversation. Mm. And uh, just to sit with that can be so profound in, um, in nourishing that ecological identity because it's so easy for us to get lost in our merely social identity, which is... In truth, it's just the thinnest little veil on top of this ancient, ancient being who we are. And uh, so, you know, we are name, rank, serial number, um, you know, uh, religion, nationality, all of these, all of these tiny little, tiny little um, um, layers of, of, of veneer over this vast, vast uh, story. Um, and it's like, the most bizarre creation myth of any indigenous culture couldn't be more extraordinary or unlikely or unbelievable than the truth that is revealed, you know, that um, it, like as an embryo in my mother's womb, I developed a vestigial tail and gills. I mean, the evidence for th- this uh, extraordinary trail that we have trod to get here, mm-hmm. it's overwhelming. And, um, so what the deep ecology experiential processes do is enable us to experience that as a sense of who we are rather than merely as a sense of sort of something in a book or where we've come from or something like that. I had such a wave of grief just then. Um, when you really map out just the extraordinary miracle and incredible journey that we've been on to get to here and then I had this huge wave of grief of like wow and then what are we doing now that we're here (laughs) you know to to, there's a there's a sense of huge transgression that I, I I wrestle with around the transgression of of the human against the rest of the miracle the rest of ourselves you know that's hard to know how to process well, uh, Joanna Macy says that what we need to do is to act our age. Which means? 
Well, which means 13.7 billion years these atoms have been circulating and weaving themselves through all kinds of things. Um, you know, we should uh, um, act with a certain amount of gravity and uh, and seriousness as a result. Mm. Yeah, and, and I guess something to, to – if only our – our wisdom didn't lag so far behind our cleverness. You know, if we were less clever, we wouldn't have the capacity to do all these crazy things that we're doing with the impacts that we don't seem to stop to think about beforehand. That's right. Yeah. So I'm really curious um, whether I think that deep ecology is a really valuable thing for herbalists and herbal folk to be leaning into. Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts around how or why deep ecology can be especially useful for people engaged in the plant world and healing with plants? Well, um, I I wrote an essay for one of um, Stephen uh, Booner's uh, books um, on this subject, and Mm -hmm. so I'd love you to put that in the show notes, um, which is a kind of a a longer answer. Mm -hmm. And it's also an answer that includes a lot of poetry because Deep ecology is far better expressed through poetry than, um, you know, through a more kind of linear discourse. Um, and But the, the answer that comes to me at the moment is uh, about a certain subsection of pan- plants which seem to have a, a particular affinity to deep ecology or at least an affinity to um, allowing us to experience our ecological identity mm. very graphically and vividly, and these are the uh, plant medicines that uh, are referred to as psychedelic. And um, so if it's okay with you, I'd like to talk about uh, some of the experiences that I've had with these medicines Mm. because in a way um, I I suspect that there's no way that I could have ended up where I've ended up without their assistance. You know, Mm. I feel in some ways that... The rainforest in 1979 at Terrania Creek, uh, the rainforest kind of grabbed me and um, and uh, shook me and uh, pointed me in the direction of the rest of my life. But I think that I was only available to that because of the years of meditation that I'd been doing prior to that. And I think that the other piece that was indispensable was the psychedelic mushrooms that had opened me to nature and in particular to the nature of Australia uh, would also, without that, I don't think that the rest of my life could have turned out the way that it did. And so at these some psychedelic experiences you had before your, your you know, really significant encounter with the rainforest in Terrain. Yeah, exactly. And so I feel like I was, I was prepared because, of course, there was hundreds of people there the same day that I was there and not everybody had the experience that I had. Mm. But all of a sudden I understood that I think as you, as you read from anthropology, beyond anthropocentrism earlier, uh, I understood that it wasn't me as a human being standing there confronting other human beings with my opinion versus their opinion. They thought that this was timber that should be logged and I thought that this was the womb of life, home to half of the world's species of plants and animals that had to be saved at all costs. And all of a sudden, 
I was a, a, I had this visceral experience of um, that I had been that I had evolved in this rainforest for a hundred million years before stumbling out onto the plains two million years ago, and that uh, for that reason and because of the preparations that I'd inadvertently done, I was available to be inhabited by that identity and I could speak with a tremendous authority and uh, I, I could act with a tremendous force that wasn't available mm. to me when I was just merely one human with a different opinion arguing with another human. When you were the rainforest emerging to protect itself, that gives you a different kind of gravitas, doesn't it? Exactly. I liked what you said earlier about um, that the philosopher Aninas said we can't think ourselves into deep ecology because it goes up against so many years of thinking, you know, in a way thinking what got us into this problem. We need to experience um, ourselves with an ecological identity. And I definitely think that is the gift that the psychedelic plants can give us. Um, I know that some more recent research shows that with mushrooms, um, they thought that there would be a lot more brain activity looking at brain scans on mushrooms. But actually, the only real difference is that there's a very small part of the brain that turns off. And that part of the brain is like the control center and it's the enculturated, socialized, um, am I doing the right thing? What am I allowed to do and not do? And it controls the way different parts of the brain communicate with each other. Everything goes through this section. So when that little piece turns off, we become more um, open to different experiences of ourselves, to different experiences of what is okay and not okay. And all different parts of the brain start talking to each other that don't normally talk to each other. I just found that so interesting. It's like there's a little part of us that is um, seeing only what it expects and experiencing only what we've been told to experience and that stops us from experiencing ourselves in this really expanded, interconnected, entangled way. Yeah, that's um, that, that's right. I, I'm excited at the at the resurgence of um, the research and the understanding that's taking place at this time, mm. and it's been uh, incredibly important for me personally because um, I, psychedelics have remained, you know, very occasional kind of source of inspiration for me all the way through. Mm. However, um, five or six years ago. Uh, I was diagnosed with a tumour behind my right eye and uh, I came close to death on a number of occasions. Um, the last time I was um, uh, scheduled for a, um, a surgery removing my right eye and uh, brain surgery and given a 50% chance of success and then on the last scan before the operation, uh, they saw that it was too late. The, the cancer was turning, uh, was traveling down towards the brain stem. And that was what made me eligible for uh, an immunotherapy, a new drug that hadn't been tested before, mm. which um, uh, made a huge difference. The first uh, infusion of that drug knocked the, uh, knocked the tumor back. However, for the next eight months, there was no further change. And um, at that time, I read a book called The Power of Eight, which uh, claimed that um, when eight people got together with a healing intention, uh, there was a better than, you know, statistically, statistically significant chance of some kind of um, resolution of, of, you know, some kind of healing taking place. 
Now, my sort of bullshit register is far too highly tuned for that kind of stuff and I'm always throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but under those conditions of life and death, I found myself reading through to the end and it, um, at the same time, I had uh, just done a workshop and one of the participants introduced himself as a um, uh, that he worked with plant medicines and um, later I found out that he was working with psychedelic medicines and in particular an Australian uh, acacia, uh, mm. which I won't name now because it's endangered, uh, but uh, there, are, there are several ac- acacias um, that, um, uh, you know, contain the, uh, the DMT that uh, was present in this one and uh, that this acacia had instructed him to heal environmentalists. <laughs> and so I sort of said, well, that's uh, funny because um, I'm an environmentalist in need of healing. And so we got together where he and um, uh, I and six of my close friends, including my um, eldest son, um, got together and we all took the intention that uh, at the next MRI scan, John Seed's tumour will have shrunk significantly. And indeed, after being stable for eight months, the the tumour shrunk by 70% at the next scan and at the, a month after that it was gone entirely. And so, wow. um, uh, of course, it may be that the power of eight alone might have had that impact but um, somehow or other, I, I've no doubt in my mind that um, this um, that this medicine, um, you know, was able to do this extraordinary work with me. And so, you know, there's uh, there's the um, there's the huge amount of insight and wisdom and understanding that I feel emerges uh, from the correct use of uh, these compounds. Uh, from of these plants, and then there's other things that um, uh, are, are much more physical, and mm. you know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, one of my university teachers was writing his PhD on, um, or had written his PhD on the immunolo- immunological uh, increases in our post ayahuasca he was researching that after ayahuasca was taken for a number of weeks or months there was like a measurable change in the immunological power of the human organism which i think is really interesting thanks so much for sharing that john so to be to you were using a medicine that was ayahuasca like as in that it was an australian dmt containing plant with an mao inhibitor do you know well um, i mean it's it's like the ayahuasca is not the, the part of the combination that contains the DMT. And so uh, the equivalent of the ayahuasca in this case, like it, it could have been acacia and ayahuasca, but in in fact it was acacia and Syrian rue. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but um, or it maybe if I'd had um, ayahuasca, uh, it, you know, it would have had the same impact. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard I've heard that particular brew referred to as Aussie Wasker. Aussie Wasker. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> ah, very like good. Okay, that's what I should refer to yeah. it henceforth. I think as well, like um just speaking more broadly about the kind of trend of using these varied psychoactive and psychedelic plant medicines in ceremonial contexts like that, that just is sparking my memory of what you were saying with your experience with Joanna Macy, that you realized that we needed to have these kind of um group 
processes that allow us to collectively experience ourselves as part of the greater living world and let go our identity of you know Stephanie herbalist mother blah 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 this this veneer level that you're talking about and uh, in a way, I think that the ayahuasca ceremonies or the other types of psychedelic plant ceremonies that are emerging um, in the West at the moment really do fulfill that purpose. You know, there, there's that ritualistic container. It taps really deeply into the ancient memory of humans of how to come together and experience ourselves more broadly. Well, a couple of years after I um, met Joanna Macy and this whole wheel started turning, I found myself um, as a witness to an Indigenous ceremony taking place on a mesa in the southwest of the United States, some Hopi people, and um, there were hundreds of people, the entire community, participating in this ceremony, um, and just a handful of us outsiders who were watching. And to my shock, I saw that they were doing the Council of All Beings, which I thought that Joanna and I had invented a couple of years before and which they assured me they'd been doing continuously for 10,000 years without a break. And as I explored it further, I found that I couldn't locate a single example of an Indigenous community that still had its uh, ritual and ceremonial life intact that didn't have ceremonies that allowed the human community to regularly remember and honour um, all, all our relations, the, the, the more than human world, and to remember that our normal social identity rested upon this uh, extraordinary root of um, ecological, uh, that we are one strand in the web of life and not the spider in the middle. And um, so when I think about that and I think that, you know, the Council of All Beings, we, Joanna and I, probably plucked it from the same place that these Indigenous people plucked it from 10,000 years ago or, or whenever it was, that there, is, uh, that there are certain things which human beings need in order to remain in correct relationship with the earth that, I mean, you don't find um, other animals doing these ceremonies or rituals. It's got something to do with... Um, this big bulge over our nose, I think, that, uh, um, you know, it's only a few hundred thousand years really, but that um, it's it's not just a modern phenomenon, this uh, mm. tendency to separate from the natural world, but all cultures have, or all existing cultures, all cultures that have survived, have found a way to correct for the drift, mm. the tendency to drift away into um, human arrogance or human superiority um, and uh, we're the first culture perhaps in hundreds of thousands of years that in you know uh, have dared to imagine that these things are merely empty ritual or mumbo jumbo and um, and have dispensed with them and perhaps the ruin that we see taking place around us is a result of that and so now I think not so much of um, community therapy as a kind of a cultural reclamation project because all of our ancestors were Indigenous, of course. And um, I also think that natural selection must have been at work on these things that um, 
Natural selection works on an individual, of course, but no individual can survive unless they're part of a viable community, and natural selection works on communities as well. So that uh, I imagine now that um, at times of extraordinary difficulty and hardship and challenge, uh, whole communities would have been wiped out, and it was those communities that had strong bonds with each other and, and were strongly uh, connected to the to the the world that they lived in, that had uh, a disproportionate chance of of making it through those uh, uh, making it through the sieve at those times, and that um, somehow uh, we need to find our way back to uh, regularly and ceremonially remembering who we are underneath that social veneer uh, in order to make it through um, the next uh, the next impasse mm, that's a yeah thank you it's a really beautiful point for us to remember it's easy to think that we're somehow as modern western people something somehow wrong with us but i like that reframing of you know we have our brain has a tendency to lean towards separation and hubris and greed perhaps and fear in a way that other species don't and so we need to counterbalance that with these rituals and ceremonies and processes that allow us to reconnect and re-experience ourselves as part of life. Um, the other thought that occurs to me, you know, when you say that and that I think fits into the general drift of this conversation is that um, going back to this perception of our extraordinary um, uh, pedigree of being the successful descendants of four and a half billion years of evolution where every one of our ancestors passed the flame of life forward to the next generation from fin to fin to paw to mm. our hand and here we are uh, in this storm where the flame is flickering um, and uh, this extraordinary moment um, as you know where the future is so uncertain that um, one of the important pieces that uh, I learned from Joanna Macy is that uh, the feelings that uh, we suppress are also um, that they're not um, culturally created. The, the feelings precede culture. That mm. you can see feelings uh, in animals, and indeed, um, the incredible intelligence that was required for the success of our ancestors that lead us to be here, 99.99999% of that was done before we developed cognitive intelligence, before we started thinking our way through the world. Um, any mammal that runs towards something wagging its tail when it should be running away as fast as it can doesn't leave its genes in the gene pool. In every single generation, the accuracy of our feelings was tested by natural selection. And um, we can call it instinct or we can call it intuition, but what we call feelings inside ourselves is what remains of this ancient intelligence that stood the test of time that led us through four, four and a half billion years of success. And the thinking intelligence, as beautiful as it is, and I have huge respect for that, um, the consequences of that are still unknown and the wheel still spins around that. But the point is that as we suppress those feelings, first of all, they're pushing up with incredible um, uh, 
naturally selected, hardwired, passionate power and to suppress them because they don't fit into the culture that we're in at the moment or because we're afraid of them um, requires an equal and opposite force. And so a huge amount of our life force uh, is um, frittered away in this futile battle between instinctual feelings and the, the fact that, um, you know, it would be embarrassing or it would be socially uh, inappropriate for me to, uh, to, to, to reveal those feelings and to share those feelings. So that when we create a safe container in these workshops to invite these feelings, a huge amount of energy is liberated, which we experience as empowerment. And the passion of those feelings gets behind our ideas, behind our cognition. So I used to think that what I needed to do as an environmentalist was to um, like to create awareness, that if only everybody was aware of what was happening, it would be okay. But now everybody is aware of what's happening and it's still not okay. And that's because our thoughts are um, infertile. Our thoughts are sterile in the absence of the passion that the feelings provide. So that mm. if we're not prepared to feel the um, uh, anger and the terror that will um, enliven those thoughts and turn those thoughts into uh, into determined action, um, change isn't going to take place. So there's a tremendous um, reward for uh, learning how to befriend those feelings and learning how to invite those feelings safely back mm. into our lives again because um, the 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 energy and the power and uh, the uh, ability to engage in some meaningful way. Otherwise, we feel helpless and hopeless and mm -hmm. what can one person do anyway and it's all too late and so on. And, and, and these things, they sound totally rational under the circumstances, but what we find is that once we, um, once we uh, invite those uh, banished feelings back into our lives, um, that sense of paralysis disappears. Mm, beautiful, really powerful work, huh? I'm so curious what everyone, you know, if everyone, just everyone that I know in the world, which is not that many people in the scheme of things, if everyone was able to contact that place of like raw grief and then the power that comes from that to be able to channel their passions towards participating in the great turning, as you, Joanna Macy calls it, um, the great turning towards a life-affirming culture that we need to be doing right now, just what would be possible? Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, thinking a bit more about um, the topic we touched on earlier around the relevance of deep ecology for herbalists, you know, and I think there's a few things that um, we've spoken about today that are particularly important. Obviously, as herbal folk and herbal herbalists, there's a deep uh, love for the natural world and the plant world and an awareness of that interconnectedness and that kind of reciprocity that exists in, in the plant world, the generosity of the living system of which we're a part. Um, but it can still be very easy to be anthropocentric in that and to experience uh, the plants as producing medicine as a type of commodity or as something that we will go and farm them and harvest them and get the medicines and the humans will, will dissect them in clinical studies and understand them and we'll know them and name them after ourselves and um 
and there's a missed opportunity there, I think, you know, and, and it is very difficult in the world we live in and the culture we've grown up in to know how to be herbalists in a way that is participatory and in relationship with those plant beings. Um, but I'm really curious about that question. And if we live into that question, interesting things can arise. You know, how do we participate with the plants and how do we work with the plants to be their voice in the world as well like what would those what would all the medicinal plants that you can see behind me in bottles of tinctures what would they love this podcast to be sharing what would they love me to be doing because they hold pieces of the puzzle that I just can't know as a human well when asked for a definition of deep ecology Arnie Ness's answer was asking deeper questions and I think he was referring to questions like that one you just asked about uh, what might the plants um, be wanting from us. And, you know, I, you know, my, my mind turns to the extraordinary uh, fact that uh, some herbalist or other um, of the I'm sure, hundreds of thousands of plants that exist in the jungle was able to find the two plants that make up the um, ayahuasca and now the Aussiewaska, um, and when asked how they could do this, the answer was, well, of course, the plants told us. Mm. And so I think the ability to listen to the plants, maybe, you know, dieta under the influence of the plants, uh, psychedelics, you know, I, I think that um, if herbalists uh, were... Um, able to um, really have the humility to become small enough mm. to be able to hear what the plants have to say um, that might, you know, be part of that, the answer to that question. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Maybe we need to collaborate on a deep ecology for herbalists immersive workshop. <laughs> ah, what a great idea, Steph. I'd love that. Yeah, that, yeah that's, that would be really exciting. Yeah, making ourselves small enough. I think that's a really, um, really powerful invitation, especially in this world of, um, you know, the the cult of the personality. It's especially as a freelance person working on your own, you're so reliant on making yourself so big on social media. You know, being an expert, being an authority, being seen, and it's it's actually so counter to what is needed of us in a really deep way at this time, making ourselves small and moving out of our own hubris and um, uh, knowing everything already, you know, like we need to be small enough to hear what the plants are asking, to hear what the, all the other living beings are asking of us so that we can take right action in this very pivotal time. Well, I think that's a beautiful way to end. Uh, I hear my family are outside, Steph. So um, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this. And uh, um, I look forward to um, further collaboration with you. Yeah, such a pleasure, John. So lovely to, to sit with you and hear your wisdom as a real elder in this in this space. That's us for this moon cycle. I'm so glad you walked into the dark forest with me. This podcast is part of The Elder Tree, a non-profit dedicated to empowering people through grassroots herbal education, weaving a strong community of herbalists, healers and plant folk in Australia. You can head over to theeldertree.org to find out more. If you like this episode, we'd love you to subscribe. And if you know who we should interview next, 
drop us a line. See you next month. And in the meantime, may you be blessed with good health and many plants. <laughs>